You're listening to a podcast edition of Closer to Truth. For more information about this series, visit our website, closertotruth.com. Art is entertainment. Could it also be more? Art is an expression of human consciousness. Could it also be a window on human consciousness? I've always enjoyed art, especially music. Beethoven, Brahms, Bruckner, Mahler, Leonard Cohen. A swelling of emotions. That was it. That was all. Recently, for me, art began to change. Triggered by an art theme of the Templeton Religion Trust, TRT, I began to wonder, could art convey higher potentials? I found myself asking questions. Why does art express the human condition? How does art stimulate creativity? Does art convey the human spirit? Could art enlarge our sense of reality? Could art provide deep understanding? How to explore art's potential? I turn to philosophy, careful analytical thinking. Philosophy has been my approach. For cosmos, philosophy of science. For consciousness, philosophy of mind. For meaning, philosophy of religion. So, for art, philosophy of art? What is philosophy of art? I'm Robert Lawrence Kuhn, and Closer to Truth is my journey to find out. The TRT art theme was originally called Aesthetic Cognitivism, how the cognitive sciences, allied with other fields, can enrich understanding of the arts. The TRT art theme is now called, more broadly, art-seeking understanding, with the intriguing question, can the arts provide understanding? Both objectives seem probative, catalytic. I pursue each of them, framing my pursuit by philosophy. What are the terms to define? What are the categories to cover? What are the questions to ask? Initial workshops with diverse experts are held in Nassau, the Bahamas, and in Grand Rapids, Michigan. I need to get up to speed. I need to attend both. I begin in Nassau with a renowned leader in philosophy and the arts, author of the classic textbook, Philosophy of the Arts and Introduction to Aesthetics, philosopher Gordon Graham. What is the structure of the, of the way of thinking to put together a philosophy of the arts? The approach I chose was, why does art matter? A lot of people have written on what's the definition of art. But I wanted to turn to Nordic questions and somehow organize the material that aestheticians and philosophers of art have discussed around what I take to be something that matters to people in the art world and matters to ordinary people too. What are the core concepts that together compose the philosophy of art? But it seems to me that most people have asked straight off, uh, what is the value of art, why does it matter? They will reach for the concept of pleasure. And they will say, well, it's, it's some kind of a special pleasure that we get. And I wanted to say, is that just entertainment? Is that all it is? When people are pressed a little bit, they 
will next move to uh, what I call expressivism. They will say art matters because it is the expression of feeling, emotion, something of that kind. And then some people, in reaction to that, for a purely formal construction, art matters because it is a formal exercise of certain sorts of faculties and skills. And that formalism is usually attached to the idea that uh, the form of art captures beauty in some way. And then finally, you get the idea, no, uh, it isn't because it's entertaining, it isn't because it's expressive, it's not because it's uh, productive of form or beauty. There's actually a kind of special understanding that art gives us that we don't get in any other way. So th those were the four uh, concepts I was exploring. And so just let's let's address some of them. I mean, take take beauty, but sometimes great art is uh, is deliberately ugly and di disquieting and uh, disruptive. So you say uh, great art doesn't have to be beautiful, but if you were really concerned with beauty, then you would simply deny that it was great art if it was ugly. And of course, with modernism in all its forms, but particularly starting with Picasso, a little earlier perhaps, but also in poetry and in music, uh, the very fact that it makes no claims to be beautiful has caused some people to discount and dismiss it. And I, I want to be at least open to that way of thinking. So my principal anxiety about beauty as the essence of art uh, is, first of all, that there's plenty of natural beauty. So if we really just were concerned with beauty being in the world, we don't have to have the arts. Uh, secondly, I do want to say there's plenty of art where it's not obvious uh, that what is at the heart of it is beauty. Take, for example, narrative fiction. So you tell a story. Now, it seems to me that the interest and structure of the story goes beyond anything that could probably be called beauty. And that leads me to a, a, a further thought. Uh, the concept of art, with, you might say, a capital A, has been dominated by the visual arts, including sculpture, where the idea that it has to be beautiful is kind of plausible. But if you look beyond that uh, to other arts, uh, drama, uh, fiction, uh, but also I would say music. It's not at all clear that what's going on most of the time uh, or importantly going on is beautiful. So one of the reasons to move to the philosophy of the arts is not to be dominated by the philosophy of the visual arts. Uh, one of the principles you mentioned is understanding. Yes. And you differentiate, I think, that from what we call knowledge. So if you think of personal understanding, understanding in personal relations, then key to that is an exercise of imagination. So I want to imagine how you see the world. So it seems to me this is just an everyday context uh, in which we see that knowledge is not enough, that it needs to go a further step, that understanding is what matters, and that understanding requires imagination so using imagination as a, as a, a, a causative factor or something that's necessary to, to lead to understanding correct all I'm trying to ask about is what makes art especially important you have your four categories did you wrestle that there may be a fifth category that you decided to reject I'm trying to understand the the nature of the framework 
I was just taking uh, what I take to be the four most recurrent themes in thinking about art. I was looking at art as pleasurable, art as expressive, art as beautiful, art as a form of understanding. Okay, so th that's, that's the framework, I understand that. So let, now let's apply that to music. Music brings into existence an ontologically distinct world. It really is a world, namely the world of sound. Now, the world is full of sounds, birdsong and wind and so on. Ocean. Uh, <laughs> uh, ocean. But it's not organized sound, it's not structured sound. The spatial and temporal dimensions of music are actually quite separate from uh, the space and time as we encounter them in normal experience. This is a very extraordinary thing, if you think about it, that human beings and human experience can enter a distinct world. And some people, the great composers, but also great performers, have it in their power to create such a world mm -hmm. and to explore it. And this, I think, is ultimately where the significance of music lies. So, yes, music can be pleasurable, and it can be expressive, and it certainly can be beautiful but, uh, and pleasurable. But I'm looking to explain music when it goes beyond that. I think it is true. Uh, that music uniquely uh, presents us, uh, offers us a, a world of its own that is ontologically distinct. I like Graham's philosophy of the arts in four acts, as it were. Art and pleasure, art and beauty, art and emotion, art and understanding. Pleasure, beauty, emotion, no surprise there. Pleasure and emotion we feel, beauty is intrinsic. But what about understanding? We do not feel understanding. Is understanding intrinsic like beauty is intrinsic? It doesn't seem quite so. Understanding is the challenge here. Understanding implies something beyond the art thing itself. Understanding raises the stakes for art. But for art to seek understanding, must art be significant? I go to Grand Rapids and meet a preeminent philosopher with wide-ranging interests, including the philosophy of aesthetics and the philosophy of religion, Nicholas Wolterstorff. We meet appropriately in a Frank Lloyd Wright house. Philosophy of art goes back to the ancient Greeks. Uh, Plato talks about rather negatively about art in most places. Aristotle has a much more positive take on poetry in his book, Poetics. The subject changed drastically in the late 18th century. I think it changed because of changes in the arts themselves. In the, in the bourgeois middle-class West, people began to prize works of art more and more as objects of, for listening, careful listening, careful looking, careful reading, and so forth. Whereas previously, works of art were in religious contexts, there were sculptures up in the cathedrals and on the tympani of cathedrals and so forth. So what we call aesthetics was born, prizing the visual auditory qualities of art. So philosophy of art became, for two and a half centuries, let's say, basically aesthetics on the aesthetic qualities of art and, and beauty. Now I'm going to give a little anecdote to explain why I became dissatisfied with that. A fine philosopher of art, Monroe Beersley, has had a wonderful book, Aesthetics. And when I began teaching philosophy of art aesthetics at Calvin College in the 70s, I used Beersley's book. 
And Beersley's book is all about the aesthetic approach to art and how we need leisure. I mean, you need extra time if you're going to go to concerts, right, and to museum and so forth. So I'm sitting in my living room on a Saturday afternoon in Grand Rapids listening to the University of Michigan radio station. Normally it's classical music. On this Saturday afternoon, the announcer said, today we're going to do something different. We're going to play work songs. For 15, 20 minutes, I'm fascinated by the aesthetic qualities of these. I mean, wonderful. And then suddenly a dissonant thought occurs to me. I say, work songs. These originated as accompaniments to work, manual labor. And I'm sitting here in my living room, treating them as aesthetic objects. There's something here that I've got to think about. Is this bad art? Is, is, is that why we philosophers pay no attention to it? But, um, I thought it was really nice aesthetic, aesthetically, and obviously the people who sang these songs while working thought they were, they were good, right? So finally, the conclusion to which I came was this. We philosophers have to broaden our perspective. We human beings engage works of the arts in all kinds of different ways. Yeah. One very important way is the aesthetic way of aesthetic contemplation. I don't want to demean that. But their work songs and the Byzantine icons, which the people kiss and so forth. So I wrote a book, Art in Action, in which I tried to make the case that we philosophers should expand our vision and reflect on them, not just on high art, or aesthetic art, but all the ways in which we human beings engage the arts. I preached that, but didn't do it. So I published Art Rethought. I actually tried to do it. So I talked about memorial art, art in which we try to keep alive and honor the memory of, of somebody or some event, art for veneration, social protest art. What I argued was that in the case of work songs, there's there, there's a new creation that takes place. There's a blend between the work and its rhythmic qualities and so forth, and the music. So it's not just music, and it's ju not just work, but while they're singing the, these songs, there's a new <laughs> music-work or work-music. It's a new emerging. substance that's emerged in reality. Yeah, uh, something, something new. So how do you refl reflect back on, on the the uh, development of philosophy of the arts, given your broadening of the, the whole category. Yeah, so what's happening in recent years is this. First, there have been a number of philosophy of art colleagues of mine who've been expanding our understanding of museum paintings, uh, concert hall music, and so forth, who've been arguing that these are not just objects for aesthetic contemplation, but they shape our understanding. Um, they've got cognitive significance. Mm -hmm. Art with cognitive significance. That's a big deal. I can feel the goosebumps. So why my malaise? I have a framework for philosophy of art. I'm on with art's expanded significance. Why do I feel something is missing? The contemporary philosophy of art must be enriched by contemporary ways of thinking. I reach out to diverse experts with art interests, a cognitive scientist, anthropologist, neuroscientist, philosopher, theologian, all brought together at the TRT workshops. Thomas Lawson, founder of the Cognitive Science of Religion, on relating the artistic experience with the religious experience.
My understanding of art is that it is a form of knowledge. It's sometimes an underappreciated form of knowledge. I think it teaches us something about reality that we, we might easily miss if we do not take the uh, art into serious. And that's really a philosophical position, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know, that, the, uh, that art is a form of knowledge. The philosophy of religion teaches us that there are dimensions to experience that sometimes develop very, very interesting connections with each other. Mm. And th there is what we call the aesthetic experience, and then there's the, the religious experience. Now, how do they connect with each other? Philosophers uh, and psychologists like William James, you know, focused upon these special kinds of experiences that people have. And there is an aspect to art that makes it special. You know, the, 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 the mystical experience, yeah, for yeah, example. Yeah. So I would say that the perspective from the philosophy of religion is really showing the really intimate connection between aesthetic experience and religious experience without reducing them to each other. I'm mean, showing that I would argue that there's a very deep connection between them. Jean-Luc Eucher, cognitive anthropologist, on what distinguishes art from non-art. There is a, a distinction to make between uh, precisely these philosophical approaches and the cognitive anthropological approach. Philosophical approaches tend to uh, focus on the normative. So what should we call art? How should people appreciate art? What criteria should they use when they judge uh, a work of art? The approach in cognitive anthropology and cognitive psychology uh, is not, we are not interested in what people should do, should think, or how they should solve a, a, a problem. We are more interested in how they actually do these things. What's important from my point of view is not to know whether people, for example, are right to, co to call a footballer an artist, but just that they do it and to understand why they do it. For example, maybe they do it because the footballer displays, uh, does uh, things that are not purely functional and that are beautiful. So they would call him an artist. One of the essence of art, although it's a strong claim, but it's precisely that they are non-functional artifacts. That would be what makes that a work of art is different than any other artifact. A work of art is non-functional and it's been intentionally created by human agent. Mm. And sometimes, but not always, it's beautiful. And, and philosophers wouldn't necessarily uh, have used that definition. Anjan Chatterjee, cognitive neuroscientist, on brain correlates of art epistemology. What we are, as a discipline designed to do, is understand human responses. Mm -hmm. And so to the extent that we have a human response to this object, uh, in this case artwork, yes. we have something to say about that. Okay. The categories of the contribution uh, might be things like what are the uh, perceptual features of the object that lead to an aesthetic experience? What are the, the set of emotional responses that are part of an aesthetic experience? People pay a lot of money to go see horror movies, <laughs> right? What's that about, right? <laughs> There's an aesthetic experience where you're, you are paying money to be terrorized, right? In, in aesthetic encounters, you can have nuanced emotions that are both positive and negative uh, in the real world, but that gets sort of combined to create a powerful experience. I think neuroscience can offer some boundary conditions. 
we don't have receptors uh, to apprehend infrared light. Mm -hmm. okay. You might have a fantastic uh, sunset, you know, a gorgeous aesthetic experience of which we are, uh, are ignorant to because we don't have the receptors, right? Are there potentially certain kinds of experiences that are more or less available uh, to us? One, based on the universal design of our nervous system, but also individual differences, right? That our nervous mm. system, our brains are not static, right? They change. And so there might be some brains, because of the adaptability and the plasticity in brains, that are more susceptible to certain kinds of experiences than others. That's the kind of thing that neuroscience might start to address. Stefan von Arp, continental theologian, on how theology can inform philosophy of art. Theology is about understanding that particular Christian view on the history of salvation. And for me, that's important when we think about the arts. How do we describe that history of salvation? Well, there's a certain narrative that there was creation, there was creativity first. And then people started to tell stories about it. So you've got the arts in creation, you've got the arts in telling stories. And these oral traditions, they became part of what we've later called Holy Scripture, the Bible. And that scripture, these books in the Bible, have created a community, a tradition of thought, with its own richness of the human imagination, which evokes all kinds of spiritual experiences. Now, how does this inform a philosophy of the arts? Well, it adds certain categories to the philosophy of the arts, which it hasn't come up with it itself. Divine creativity, that there is transcendence, there's the divine at work in human imagination and human creativity. These texts have generated a whole aesthetic tradition and a richness of the imagination. So divine creativity, the human imagination and uh, the narratives about uh, of humanity about itself, uh, scripture as generating a community, which is a community of salvation, and a tradition that it generates of images and creativity, all these are, I think, different concepts different concepts that could inform the philosophy of the arts. Nathan Jacobs, philosopher of Eastern patristic thought and a painter himself on how artists make art. I don't consider myself an aesthetician, right, or a theorist when it comes to art, but I do have a pretty developed self-understanding of what I'm doing as an artist. Now, that's largely based on me sort of reverse engineering what am I doing. I started with just the basic notion that art is in some ways skill, and I like using the, uh, the concept of potential to actual, right? This sort of Aristotelian concept that we have certain potentials within us, and that's more than nothing, right? Uh, but it's different than actual something. And uh, I like to think of artistic skills in those same ways, right? The idea that what an artist is is one who has cultivated that certain skill set. And then uh, what we call art is typically an artifact or an artwork, some sort of outward articulation of that skill set. And this is one of the reasons why I think that there's an ontological reality to art, given that relationship, 
it's not simply I declared art, so it's art. If it's not an extension of the certain skill sets that I have acquired that make me an artist in the first place, then it's not really truly an artwork just because I made it. A chef could be uh, a, a, could be an artist, right? It's a certain skill set, uh, and the and the food uh, when it's you know crafted by that chef is a work of art, right? Uh, I don't have a problem with making those sorts of claims and not restricting art to in some ways what's in the gallery. We tend to want to draw certain divisions, right, between things that would be art and things that are pure utility. There is a question of uh, teleology, right, the end or the purpose of the thing. Food is to be eaten, right? And that's not a, maybe not as high of a teleology as building a cathedral, right? <laughs> okay, well, so be it. But, you know, that doesn't exclude it from being art. Graham's framework for philosophy of art is elegant. Art as pleasurable, art as beautiful, art as emotion, art as a form of understanding. To me, understanding stands out or sticks out requiring engagement beyond the art itself. Waltersdorf declares the cognitive significance of art, expanding art's impact as a creative enterprise in the real world. The contemporary philosophy of art must embed contemporary concepts of science and other areas. From the cognitive science of religion, what do we make of similarities between artistic and religious experiences? From cultural anthropology, what distinguishes art from non-art? From cognitive neuroscience, what are the brain correlates of art appreciation? From theology, do depictions of creation and salvation enrich aesthetics? From a self-reflecting painter, how does the artist elucidate the art? Follow the dots, the line is drawn. From philosophy of art, to foundations of art, to human understanding, to human consciousness, to closer to truth. To watch complete conversations with over 100 of the world's leading thinkers on cosmos, consciousness, and meaning, visit our website, closertotruth.com.